this evening we are continue on our series on the book of Ephesians. So our culture is before we move on to the um I think we stopped on verse 14. Right, verse 14 that says, which is the earnest of our inheritance unto the redemption of the purchased possession. But you know, before we just continue there, we'll just do a brief recap of the things that we spoke about last week. Right. I think um let me just open Ephesians here to be sure of where we stopped last week. Ephesians 1. Okay, I think last week, we started from verse 11. It says, In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him that works all things after the counsel of his own will. And I tried to use this to explain the fact that when he says that we have obtained an inheritance, you know, you shouldn't be quick to jump at what the inheritance is. Don't just think the inheritance is my in Christ realities, etc., etc. The context explains what the inheritance is, all right? But it's important that he says that we are predestinated according to the purpose of him that works all things after the counsel of his will. Already in context, in just the verse before, he says, in the dimension of fullness of times, he will gather in one all things in Christ, which are in heaven, which are not even in him. So when he tells you all things, he already gives you a perspective of what those all things are. All things that he's going to gather together in Christ, both in heaven, even on the earth, in him, all right? And he says he works all things after the counsel of his will. And we already saw what his will was, you know, when we saw what the mystery or what the pleasure of his will is or what the mystery of his will is, all right? How that it is actually talking about the gathering together in one all things in Christ, all right? Which we actually, you know, um, through corroborative study, actually saw that that gathering together in one all things in Christ is what actually happens in the end of the age, all right? Is what happens at the point when Jesus comes, all right, and the believer receives his, his redeemed or his glorified body. That at that particular point in time is when this particular thing spoken about here would happen, when all things would be gathered together in Christ. Because the redemption of the body of man, which is the final salvation of man, would also affect creation as well. All right, we saw what um, Paul was saying in the book of Romans chapter 8, that he says that um, for the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but at the reason of him who subjected the same in hope. And he said that um, creation shall also be delivered out of the um, bondage of corruption, even unto the glorious liberty of the sons of God. Meaning that as a reason of the salvation of the son of, sons of God in the last days, all right, the creation would also be affected, would also be delivered from bondage. So um, at the coming of Christ, it's not just the believers that something will change. Or that something will change in, or that something will change for. Just as the believers receive their glorified body, there will be a uh, there will be an effect as well on all of creation. Just as all of creation was affected at the reason of the sin of man. All right, and there, the what I'm trying to drive us is the fact that when he says being predestinated according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will, how that he lets you know that the person who has decided that these things will be is also the person who causes all things to work according to the counsel of his will so it is sure that it is going to happen all right so he's letting you know that see everything that happens today is working to the end that that which he has spoken will come to pass why because he is the one who works all things after the counsel of his will all right so all things all things in heaven in earth you know under the earth principalities power dominion might authority whatever they may be all things are working all right to the end that that will will be accomplished. He works all things after the counsel of his will. All right. 
And then, having seen that, we move to, of course, verse 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. And then I, I try to explain the idea of this first trusting in Christ, and in him you also trusted. How that he was actually trying to put a distinction here between those who first received the gospel and those who received the gospel afterwards. You know, that's Jews and Gentiles. All right. Right, so he says, in him you also trusted, after that you heard the word of truth, and the word of truth there is the gospel of your salvation. All right, it says, in whom also, after that you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. All right, he says, it is the earnest. All right, and I try to explain the word earnest there. But the word earnest there is the Greek word arabon. All right, okay, before earnest, in fact, the word sealed, all right, the word sealed there, I think I said it is the Greek word sphragizo. All right. The word sealed there is the Greek word spragizo. And it's um let me check it just to be sure. Uh okay, yes. It's the Greek word um, spragizo. It means a stamp of security. All right. It means a stamp of security. You know, it's the it's it's, it's actually a word that is akin to uh, uh, uh an engagement ring. All right. It's a word that is akin to an engagement ring, you know. It's a it's it's a signature, all right. When you hear things like signet ring, it's a signature that um this thing is my own, all right. So it's you know it's just like in today's parlance where you know when a man is about to get married to a woman, then you know he he gets engaged to her and he gives her a ring. You know what is that ring supposed to let you do under normal circumstances? It's to let you know that this woman is off limits, all right. This particular person is off limits. There's someone there. There's somebody on a matter already, you know, and as I said before, under normal circumstances, because these days, you know, crazy things are happening in the words of a good philosopher, all right? And so, <clears throat> as I was saying before, so the word to, to be sealed there is actually a word that means to be stamped securely or a stamp, you know, signifying security or a stamp for security, all right? And it says that um, that seal is the Holy Ghost. It says you are sealed with that Holy Spirit a promise, all right? And I already explained here that the promise there is not that the Holy Spirit was promised, all right? But rather that the Holy Spirit is our assurance of the promise, all right? So there is a promise. And in fact, that is why the Holy Spirit has sealed us. The Holy Spirit seals us in anticipation of that promise. So the promise referred to here is not like the promise of the Spirit or the promised Holy Spirit, no. It's the fact that the Holy Spirit in us is the seal and the assurance we have of the promise that we are waiting for or of the inheritance that we are going to receive, which, of course, by context, as we have seen, is the redemption of our bodies. Okay? So I'll continue again. It says, of course, in verse 14, is the NS Arabon. And I try to explain that Arabon actually refers to um, a down payment, all right? A down payment for something. Say, for example, I intend to um I, I think i use the example of get a plot of land all right or a car for 3.7 million naira, and then i've already paid you 2.5 million okay and then i tell you you see what um when i bring the rest of the money all right i'm going to take and of course i mean this might not be an exactly perfect example but let's just believe in this case that for whatever reason this person has decided ah because you paid 2.5 million i'm not going to sell it to anybody else okay so you have Although you've not received that thing you paid for, okay, but you have paid for. In fact, the way to actually look at it in terms of salvation would actually be that everything has been paid, but you just haven't collected it yet. Are you together? So you've already 
the 3.7 million for the car, you pay the 3.7 million. But maybe for whatever reason, you've not just come to pick up your car. All right. So you paid for it. It's the down payment. You paid for it already. The car is yours. All right. The only difference is that you've not just come to, you know, enter into your car and drive it to your house for whatever reason. All right. And that's what you can see with salvation because the price has been paid fully. All right. The, the, the price for sin, the price for salvation of man has been paid fully. Bible says in First Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 20, it says, you are bought with the price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. All right. So you've been bought already. All right, your spirit and your body, they are both gods. So God has bought them already, has bought them fully. However, you know, the spirit of God in us is the assurance of that which is to come. All right. And that is in that sense the down payments, the surety we have. Because the spirit builds in us, we have an assurance, a confident expectation that we will receive the redemption of our bodies. Hallelujah. All right. And that's just something to know. All right, so it says it's the end of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. All right, and so that is where we stopped last week. So we're going to pick up from there now. All right, so Ephesians 1 from verse 15. So let's go. So it says, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints. Now let's start from here. You see, it's interesting that he says, After I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, and then he moves on to begin to talk about a prayer point because oftentimes we expect that when you have um, people who are basking in God's word or who are basking in God's love or who are growing spiritually, doing the things they're supposed to do, you know, you know, you just naturally want to, you know, just say, ah, that's beautiful. Maybe you thank God for them, you know, and then you just move on. But you know, it's interesting that Paul is about to introduce them to what he prays for them consistently. And then he starts it with, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for the saints. That would mean that there is always a need to pray for believers, even when they are doing well. All right. And this is something interesting to note, you know, as a disciple, as a disciple, as a teacher of the word, that you must always pray for the flock, even when they are doing well, even when it seems like they are making you proud. Even when your head is swelling, you must pray for them, right? He says, uh, it says, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, all right? Faith in the Lord Jesus God refers to salvation, all right? Just refers to the fact that they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But more so, you know, the first thing, faith in the Lord Jesus is a reality in Christ, all right? Something that we have, um, that is something that defines our salvation, all right? But then the next thing that follows is actually a function of conduct, is a function of training. He says, and love unto all the saints. All right. And, you know, um, it's important to note that this is actually a test to a measure of spiritual growth. All right. Because the reality of it is this, as I've always told you guys, what a man will do in his body will be a function of what he has renewed his mind to condition himself to do. All right. So when you find a believer who is given to love, he's given to love because his mind, all right, has been conditioned to be that way. And because his mind has been conditioned to be that way, he can now respond to do certain things to people, okay? And so a believer who is walking in love is one that has had his mind renewed to love. He's one that has seen, you know, when the Bible says that uh, uh, um, God, God, um, God's love is saying that he laid down his life for us, and so we also ought to lay down our life for the brethren. You know, his mind has become renewed to that fact that when we speak about God's love, we speak about God's giving nature. And therefore, because God gave me in Christ Jesus, and because I've received Christ in me, I also have that love of God in my heart. 
All right. Just as um, 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 the book of Romans says, Romans chapter 5, um, I think verse 6. Where is, is it verse 6? Now where it says, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost that is given unto us. All right. So as a reason of salvation I've received, as a reason of the Holy Ghost I've received, the love of God is shed abroad in my heart as well. And so I can live just as Christ did. All right. So I can do the things that Christ, I can live on the earth just as Christ lived on the earth. I can be sacrificial in my love just as Christ you know, was sacrificial in his love. That way of thinking or that manner of thinking or that manner of reasoning can only come as a function of a renewal of the mind to the world that then causes the man to act a certain way. All right. And that's basically what, of course, the book of Romans was saying, Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, where it says, be not conformed to the world, all right, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind. All right. So the transformation is fundamentally a renewal of the mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So by the renewing of the mind, I am now able to prove, all right? So my transformation is in the fact that my mind is renewed. To the end, I am now able to prove. The word prove there actually just means to experiment. It means to do, to test. It means it's something that you, the proving is not that you are proving. It's actually a proving by doing, all right? It's the same word that's used, to, that's used for test, all right, or to try or to experiment. So by my renewal of my mind to the word, I am now able to do, all right? I'm able to um, make an example of it as a reason of my doing. And what, what am I doing? Of course, the good, the acceptable, and the perfect will of God, all right? So I just thought to say that, by the way, all right? What I was trying to drive out there basically is that the first thing, all right, faith in the Lord Jesus is more of an inner thing, all right? It's what happens at salvation. But the second one, love unto all the saints, is something that is a commendation, all right? It's something that you see by people, all right? And then you commend them for it. And, you know, and he says, you know, um, having faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, your love unto all the saints, he says, cease not to give thanks for you. And that's something important as well, all right? Cease not. That's something to pay attention to, first of all. Cease not, all right? Uh, uh, one of the constant things you see about prayer in Scripture is that continual nature, cease not. This, and this is not the only time when Paul is saying something like this. Paul also says the same thing, I believe, in um, Colossians 1 from verse 9. Right? He says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you may be filled with knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. All right? So, talks again about we did not cease. All right? We did not cease. We cease not. You know, do not cease to pray for you. All right, so it gives you a mindset of continuity in the place of prayer. Same also with Ephraim, Colossians 5, verse 12. The Ephraim, the servant of Christ, salutes you. All right, it says, Always laboring fervently, always, always laboring fervently for you, and that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. It gives you an idea of continuity, always. All right, um, Colossians 5, verse 2. Watch in prayer, continuing the same with thanksgiving. All right, all right. To watch prayer continue in the same with thanksgiving. So he's not just even telling you to constantly do it. He expects you to continue. So he expected that you have been praying before. He now says continue in the same with thanksgiving. Ephesians 6 and verse 18. All right. Praying always. Praying always without prayer and supplication in the spirit. Watching generously without perseverance and supplication for all saints. Hallelujah. So you see a, 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 a tone of continuity with prayer. A tone of, and you see, this is the mindset that a pastor or a trainer or a discipler must consistently have for those he teaches or for those he trains. I am constantly praying for them. Do you know the confidence you need to have for you to be able to say, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. I cease not. I do not cease. You know, it's a constant thing. I am always praying for you. Cease not. 
to give thanks for you. All right. And so that's the mindset in the Bible. She says, not to give thanks for you. And then it says, making mention of you in my prayers. Making mention of you in my prayers. And then he now goes on to speak the prayer. All right. And you know, it's interesting the fact that, you know, you would expect that um, the kind of, ah, in fact, I remember there's a particular phrase that people oftentimes say. They will say, um, the kind of person you marry. Ah, I've forgotten how they used to say this thing. They will say, they will say, the kind of person you marry determines if you have a prayer partner or a prayer point. So, so in other words, what they're trying to say is that when you marry a spouse that you always have to pray about or pray for, you know, then you know that you're in problem. Rather, you should marry a spouse that you know you pray together with them, and it makes a lot of sense. All right, it makes it makes total sense what they're trying to say because it has its own context. But the reality of it is this as well: is that one of the things you see from scripture is that you're constantly supposed to pray for people. All right. So the truth is, whether or not the person is giving you wala or the person is stressing you out, you expected to the person is expected to still be your prayer point. All right. So even though what they are saying has its context and it makes a lot of sense and it's right. All right. But the reality of it really is that it is Christian behavior or it is Christian attitude to pray for everyone and to pray for them consistently. All right. That's a Christian way to live. Okay. And so. Even though, of course, you don't want to have disciples that are prayer points in that context, in the context of people that are stressing you out and you always have to pray for them because they are giving you wala. But the truth of it really is this, is that as a disciple, you have to constantly pray for them, even when they are doing well. All right. And I'm, 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 I'm particularly emphasizing on that, even when they are doing well. Because there's always the, uh, there's always that trap, um, oftentimes, that I see when, you know, you begin to have some results with your disciples and suddenly you begin to feel the need to you know just slow down you know and you know ah, you just feel good about it all right and you quickly forget that <laughs> you have to constantly pray all right you have to constantly pray as you're giving thanks right for the things you see you have to constantly pray, pray. making mention of you in my prayer cease not to give thanks for you all right and then it now goes on in verse 15 to now states what the prayer is um, verse 17, sorry to state what the prayer is. And let's, let's see what that prayer is. It says that the God uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, sorry, I'm reading from my head. Let me open it. I don't miss any detail. Uh, it says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, he says, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in knowledge of him. So he says, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. All right. He says, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him. Now, here's the first problem. What does it mean by give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him? Is he speaking about a different spirit? Is he saying that um, we have a different spirit of wisdom and revelation? Because don't forget, just in the verses before now, that's in verse 13, it tells you that um, in him you also trusted. After that, you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. No more so after that, you believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So he just told us in few verses before that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. So how is it then that we who are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise still have to pray that we receive the spirit of wisdom and revelation? That's number one. So is the spirit of wisdom and revelation a separate spirit? From the spirit of god that's number one number two you must have heard of a concept like the seven spirits of god seven spirits of god all right seven spirits of god and of course it's in the bible and so you now begin to wonder or oh, is it that the spirit of wisdom and revelation 
is one of the seven spirits of God. All right. Maybe there's a spirit of excellence, the spirit of this one, the spirit of that one, you know, so on and so forth. So what exactly is Apostle Paul saying here? What does he mean when he says the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him? All right. And I like the way um, um, other versions put this part. I think if you check the NIV or the HCSB, what you see it's called is it's called spiritual wisdom or the wisdom by the spirit or the wisdom of the spirit. What you realize is that the spirit of wisdom actually is spiritual wisdom or wisdom by the spirit or wisdom of the spirits. All right. So it's not saying a different spirit. Rather, he's talking about um, a wisdom. All right. That proceeds from the spirit or a wisdom that proceeds um, from within the spirit, basically. All right, spiritual wisdom or wisdom that pertains to the spirit. That's something. Wisdom that pertains to the spirit. And then he goes on. He says, the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now, the word and there is a Greek word kai. All right, it's a Greek word kai. And as I told you guys before, kai could either refer to, um, you know, um, and, right? Um, and, or it could also mean that is or which is. Okay. And when you look at that place very well, it, it, it would make a lot of sense because it would be, in this case, spiritual wisdom, which is revelation in the knowledge of him. Again, spiritual wisdom, which is revelation in the knowledge of him. So, really, the spiritual wisdom or the spirit of wisdom is revelation in the knowledge of Christ. So the wisdom that pertains to the Spirit, because of course there's an earthly wisdom, all right? But the wisdom which is by the Spirit, which is in the Spirit, which is of the Spirit, which pertains to the Spirit, are we together? Is the revelation in the knowledge of Christ. And so when Paul was praying there, all right, what he was praying for was the wisdom of the Spirit which is revelation in the knowledge of Christ. Hallelujah. Revelation in the knowledge of Christ. That is the wisdom by the Spirit. And so he says uh, 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 that God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you. So now he will give unto you the wisdom of the Spirit. All right. The wisdom by the Spirit, which is revelation in the knowledge of him. All right. And then he then goes on in the next verse to explain better what he's talking about. He goes on in the next verse to explain better what he's talking about. He says, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Now, the word eyes of your understanding here is a, um, what's the word now? It's a, it's a figurative statement, actually. is what you could use to say, the eyes of your mind. The word eyes there doesn't necessarily refer to eyes, all right? It just means that a means of perception. So the eyes of your understanding there won't, just, won't actually refer to eyes because the question is how can your understanding have eyes, all right? And so when you see that um, that which is spoken about does not have a literal, you know, meaning or expression, you then move to um, the figurative sense, all right? Uh, and if you try to see um, in other versions, all right, you see it called the eyes of your mind, all right? It just basically refers to a means of perception, okay? A means of perception. When it says the eyes of your understanding, the eyes of your mind, 
It's just referring to the ability for your mind to know or the ability for your understanding to conceive particular things. And so it says the eyes of your mind being enlightened. All right. The eyes of your mind being enlightened. And what will happen as the eyes of your mind are enlightened or further with light? It says that you may know. That you may know. So what that would mean is that the eyes of your mind or the eyes of your understanding being flooded with light will lead you to know. Will lead you to know. So this already lets you know that it can't just be about, you know, some physical eyes, all right? No. The eyes being able to see will lead to an understanding. So it already lets you, gives you a good um, idea to let you know that this eyes being spoken about is an eye of the mind. It's something that refers to a knowledge, something that has to do with knowledge, that has to do with understanding, all right? So it says the eyes of your mind being enlightened or being flooded with light that you may know. And now, what are we knowing? And this is what you need to pay attention. It says that you may know the hope of his calling. The hope of his calling. Now, you see, we're going to take these um, things one after the other. Now, you see, of course, by now, I think you should notice that the believer is called. The believer is called. Look at First uh, Timothy chapter 2. First Timothy 2, or sorry, Second Timothy 1 and verse 9. Second Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9. What does it mean to be called? You know, oftentimes when we hear the idea when we, or when we hear something like call, all right, you see, that man is called. Oftentimes we are referring to ministry, all right? We're referring to a call to ministry. And that's not necessarily wrong, but the problem is when we generalize a phrase that was used few times for a particular thing okay so just as for example when we hear the word ministry in today's palace when you hear the word ministry oftentimes people think you are referring to a pastor or someone who ministers on the pulpit etc etc and whereas the word ministry in scripture fundamentally was used for service in fact most of the time it was used for the ministry of the gospel for, by every saint are we together by every believer and so you must learn to use Bible words, Bible way. Okay. So when he says you, um, the hope of his calling, the calling there won't primarily be referring to, or won't even necessarily be referring to a calling to ministry. All right. Every believer is called. So let's see what he's talking about. Second, second chapter one, verse nine. He says, Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling? Called us with a holy calling. He says, Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which he has given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, all right? Wherever you are, I just want to say, I'm called. I'm called of God, all right? The believer is called of God. Glory to Jesus. The believer is called of God, all right? If we have or we are products of a holy calling, okay? Uh, uh, first, first chapter 2 and verse 9, in verse I always quote a lot, all right? It says, we are chosen generation, we are royal priesthood, we are holy nation, we are God's own peculiar people, he says, to show for the praises of him who has called us out of darkness. He has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Hallelujah. He has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. In fact, the word church, all right, the word church is actually the word, is actually you know, the Greek word ecclesia. And it's gotten from, uh, it's gotten from um, <coughs> two words, ek and kles. I'm oh, sorry, ek and klesis, all right. Ek means out of. Klesis means is actually klesis is a word that is gotten from the noun klesis is a verb and is gotten from the noun kalio. Or is it sorry, I think I've mixed it around. Kalio is the verb, klesis is the noun. 
all right? Kalio means to call, all right? And then klesis is what is done, all right? Is the call, okay? So Kalio actually means to call. So ecclesia actually refers to a calling out, all right, of a particular people or, you know, to have a special people, all right? Um, what you have as the church, basically, is what you would call the called out ones, all right? So the idea of the church, the idea of the believers in Christ Jesus or the saints in Christ Jesus are actually folks who are called out. We've been called out of the crooked and perverse generation. We've been called out of the darkness of this world and we'll be called into a kingdom of light, all right? So when he says, who also has translated us out of the power of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son, that's a calling. That's a calling forth out of darkness. That's the holy calling, all right? Because we have now been called to be separate. We've been called to be separate from the world. We've been called unto God, unto his family, all right? Into a new family, the family of God. And as a reason of that, that is why he says we've been called with a holy calling, all right? Because it is separate unto God, all right? And so the believer fundamentally is one that has been called, right? Called out of darkness. The resurrection, all right, is a calling out of the bondage of sin. That's what the resurrection is. And so every man who believes in the fact that Jesus died, was buried and rose again from him, all right, and has become a recipient of the resurrection, has also received that calling from the dead as well. Are we together? And so when you see the word call in scripture, I don't want your mind to always fundamentally go to a calling in ministry. I want your mind to always, first of all, go to what the believer has received in Christ Jesus. The believer is called from darkness into light. Hallelujah. I'm called from darkness into light. I'm called from darkness into light. I'm called out of darkness into light. I have a holy calling. I'm called out of darkness into light. I'm no longer in darkness. I'm now in the light. I'm no longer in darkness. I'm now in the light. I'm no longer in darkness. Now my eyes see. My eyes see clearly. Uh, my eyes see clearly. I'm now in the kingdom of God's own son. Called out of darkness into light. Hallelujah. That's the most important calling that a man has received. And that's the calling in salvation. And then the calling, I, want, I must say this, the calling for the work of ministry is only efficacious or effective as a reason of man's calling unto salvation. All right? As a reason of man's call unto salvation. You see, in a man's call unto salvation, it is fundamentally what God does for the man. The man just receives it. All right? But in a calling unto ministry, all right, there is now the... Um, 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 uh, in the calling unto ministry, there is now the responsibility of the man to be consecrated to the work. All right, so in salvation, the man really is doing nothing save the fact that he is receiving the call, is there, he's just receiving the call, all right, and then he's automatically moved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. However, the calling the work of ministry oftentimes is a call to be set apart. So, the calling the work of ministry oftentimes is a scream of consecration, all right, it's a scream of consecration for the work that one has been called unto. All right. So just for example, you see in Acts chapter 13, it says, separate unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. Are we together? So they've been called for a work. That's an example of the work of ministry. They've been called for a work. And what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to separate themselves for that work they've been called unto. So you see consecration. So there are two types of calling fundamentally you see in scriptures. Therefore, you have the calling for salvation, which is a holy calling, which is, so you're not the one setting yourself apart. As you receive the gospel, all right, as you believe in what Christ has done, the gospel sets you apart, all right? That's one. And then there's a calling of ministry, which leads a man into the act of consecration. Hallelujah. Just not to say that. So he says, so back to Ephesians 1 that we were reading. Ephesians 1. Ephesians chapter 1, all right, uh, in verse 18, all right, he says, I have been enlightened that you may know the hope of his calling. Again, the word hope there, we've seen this over and over, is the Greek word elpis or elpizo, 
and it refers to a confident expectation. All right, it refers to a sure assurance. All right, I said a sure assurance. That's like it, that's tautology. All right, it means a definite assurance. All right, in fact, definite assurance sounds like the same thing. But what I'm just trying to say basically is this: is that oftentimes, you know, um, in in our local day parlance or when we do the things we do, when you use the word hope, hope for people oftentimes refers to a 50-50 chance. I hope I I hope I don't sleep early today. All right, or I hope I see him tomorrow. That just means in our in our local parlance, it means oh well, uh, it's really not in my hands, but I would love to get to see him tomorrow. You know, but hope in scripture is not like that. And that's one of the reasons why you must learn to use Bible words, Bible way. Hope in scripture actually refers to a confident expectation. A confident expectation. That's what hope in scripture refers to. A confident expectation that this thing has not happened, but I am sure it will happen. That's hope. It has not happened yet, but I am very sure that it's going to happen. And I'm looking forward to it. That's hope in scripture. As I've showed you guys before from Romans 8, verse 24, he says, hope that is seen he says is not hope so in other words for something to be hope it has not happened yet however i reckon that it's going to happen so the difference between faith and hope faith and hope are not necessarily so separate from each other faith is that i believe it has happened all right i believe it has happened i reckon that it has happened all right and i walk as one you know that um is sure that it has happened Hope is that I know it is going to happen. I am sure it is going to happen. And that's why it, and that's why scripture will let you know that salvation is by grace through faith. All right. So when I, I'm not I'm not hoping that I will be saved, I'm saved already. That's faith. All right. However, in that salvation, there is a hope of the redemption of my body. Now that is the hope. That's something I'm looking forward to. Are we together? So I'm saved by grace through faith. All right, I'm saved today. Even though I can't see it, I'm saved. All right, I'm saved. However, what I'm looking forward to is the redemption of my body. And that for me is a hope. All right, so that's how, you know, um, um, Bible words are used. So it says the hope of his calling. The hope of his calling. Now, I think I must also say this, that don't forget that this verse we're looking at here is a part of a chapter. We've been going through, we've been having a particular context as we were reading downwards from like verse 11 or from verse 10 all the way down there has been a central thing that we have been seeing consistently in the ages to come or in, in, in yeah in the ages to come it might um is it ages to come now that's sorry in dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in christ both which are in heaven which are on earth even in him all right. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him, which worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. All right. Those that's the context that we have been seeing so far, on and on and on. All right. So do not lose that context because it has a lot to do as we as we go on. All right. And um, so you see, he says that that we may know what is the hope of his calling. Now we've seen that hope, according to scripture. Is that which we look forward to, that which we expect. Calling is what happens to a man in salvation. So clearly, the hope of his calling, another way to call, or another way to say the hope of his calling is the hope of our salvation. Simply, the hope of our salvation. Because one of the things I've noticed oftentimes is this, is that people oftentimes pray the Pauline prayers without necessarily understanding what it is 
they are praying. And this is one of the things you must pay attention to about the Pauline prayers. You need to notice that Paul wasn't necessarily telling you to pray the Pauline prayers. And that's something very important to note. Paul didn't ask us to pray it. Paul was just telling us what he was praying for us. And, and I believe that the reason he did that was because oftentimes you are much more effective at receiving from prayers when you know that which are what is being prayed for. All right. So I believe that Paul let them know what he was praying for for them so that they would know or so that they would be alert or so that they would be effective in receiving from what he was praying for them. Are we together? It's always easier to receive, you know, when you are praying for people. It's just basically, it's almost more or less like agreements in prayer. All right. And it's one of the reasons why it's, it's basically a principle of prayer. When you are praying for someone, it's almost impossible to pray for someone that which the person doesn't want for himself. You can't do that. It's one of the reasons why you cannot pray man into salvation. All right. Because when it comes to prayer, you cannot override the will of the recipients. The recipients will also have to be involved. So that, that's why there's such a thing as agreement in the place of prayer. So I'm praying for you and I let you know that which I'm praying about so that you can receive it. You can position yourself to receive of answered prayers. All right. So, <clears throat> as I was saying, I was saying that Paul did not write the, the, the Pauline prayers for the church to pray necessarily. He was letting them know what he was praying for them about. That would therefore mean that the power is not in necessarily the words. It's in understanding what exactly is being said. So, it's not like if you pray the Pauline prayers but with different words but with the same meaning. The power is no longer there. It's still there. Because at the end of the day, it's not the words that determine it. It's the meaning. Are we together? And so that's why it's, it's more important that, that you understand what is being said than that you have the polite prayers, you know, crammed in your head. This is not in any way to say that it is wrong to have the prayers crammed in your head. In fact, I believe, all right, that because you've been praying them over and over again, there's particular prayers that you should already have in your head. Ephesians 6, 18 to 19. Um, um, first is second Thessalonians 3 from verse 1 to 2. Um, Ephesians 1 from verse 15 all the way to 19. They must be in your head because you've been praying them again and again. All right. But what I'm just trying to let you see here is that you must understand that which is what that which you pray for. It's not tongues, all right. It's the Pauline prayer. So you must understand what you are praying, so you are able to pray it well. Okay. And so when he says the hope of his calling, what he's just talking about basically is the hope of your salvation. Right, as we've seen, the calling is the calling of salvation. So the hope of his calling is basically the hope of your salvation. All right. And what is the hope of your salvation? Of course, it is that which you look forward to in salvation, that which you anticipate in salvation, that which you um that confident expectation you have as regards salvation. And of course, we've seen that already. That that is basically the redemption of our bodies. Hallelujah. When the Bible says in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20, it says our conversion is in heaven. It says, From whence we eagerly await the coming of our Savior. Um, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, who shall turn our vile bodies to be fashioned like unto his glorious body. So that's which we wait for as believers is the coming of our Lord Jesus. To what end? That our bodies will be fashioned like his own. Hallelujah. Romans chapter 8 and verse 11. He says that for if the spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, he says that same spirit shall quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwells in you. So there is something that we are eagerly waiting for. There is something that we are looking for. And it's the quickening of our mortal bodies, the resurrection of our mortal bodies, all right, on the last day, at the last trump, all right, when corruptible shall be swallowed up, swallowed up of incorruptible, when mortality shall put on immortality. Hallelujah. Let's continue. So it says, the hope of his calling, all right. Then next up, it says, and what is the riches 
of the glory of his inheritance of the saints. Now, first of all, the word riches actually there is a word that means expanse. Riches just means to let you know how big it is, all right? That it is so big. So use the word riches, okay? But then much more than that, he says the riches of the glory of his inheritance. Some versions use the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, and this is why context is very important. You could you could easily look at this and say, riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. So, for example, one of the inheritance that we have in Christ is the power of God. All right, so it lets you know how powerful the power of God in us is, etc. etc. All right, and that's not necessarily bad, but there is a context. Let's look at the places where we find the word inheritance used in the book of um in Ephesians 1, at least the closest places to where we are. In Ephesians 1, and I think verse verse 11. Yes, verse 11. He says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance. So we can see the word inheritance used in verse 11. He said, Maybe there's later according to the purpose of him which rocket all things after the cancer of his own will. In verse 14, he also says, The Spirit is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. All right. And I already even I explained this how that, therefore, the inheritance has to be the purchased possession. All right. So if he says, The Spirit is the earnest of our inheritance until the purchased possession is redeemed. So the earnest. Of the inheritance, so the inheritance is that which the earnest was given for, all right, until it is redeemed. So the purchased possession basically is inheritance, all right, and that is what the redemption of our bodies, quite simply. So when you see inheritance used in the context of Ephesians 1, and that's why I said by um, context is key. If you were to use your own mind or your own understanding to explain it, you naturally would. Just refer to inheritance as you know what the man has received in Christ Jesus, our in Christ realities, and that's not necessarily bad. But by context, fundamentally, in Ephesians 1, inheritance would refer to the redemption of our bodies. And so when he speaks about the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, or the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, you'll be talking about the beauty, the expanse, the majesty of the glorified body or of the redemption of our bodies that is in Christ. You know, it is talking of, about that beauty, that glory, you know, that glamour, all right, that we come to behold, you know, even as we see the redemption of our bodies in Christ. All right. So it will be talking about our in Christ realities, rather fundamentally, or first of all, or primarily, it will be talking about, you know, the glory, all right, of our redeemed bodies, you know, as we, you know, just you know, just gaze upon, you know, what scripture has said about it, and we are in awe. We are in awe. Are we together? We are in awe. You know, the fact that the Bible says mortality will be swallowed up of immortality. The, 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 sheer, the sheer intelligence and brilliance of the fact that man will be made to live forever. It, it blows the mind. You know what that means? It means there will be no sickness again. No pain again. No sickness. So you don't, you know, there's no more, ah, um, 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 these mosquito bites, you know, I, I might have malaria. Nothing like that. You know, death is a function of sicknesses. So if there's no death, there's no sickness, pretty much. No sickness. And so man will live forever. There is no going to be aging. You know, aging, aging is just one of the signs of death. There's not going to be aging. Hallelujah. Forever. It's going to be as though there is an engine working in man. All right, that will never stop. The sheer brilliance, the sheer intelligence of it, how powerful it's going to be. 
you know it just blows the mind and so the awe that we are in of that is actually the riches of the glory of inheritance in the saints like when you behold it you're just in awe you're just in awe you see it and your mind just goes like what is this that's the riches you know the expanse of the glory the expanse of the glory of his inheritance in the saints that's what he's talking about there so it's not just talking about you know the power that you have in christ jesus the this that you have in christ jesus the that you have in christ jesus no fundamentally is referring to the the glory or the expanse of the majesty of our redeemed bodies that's which we look forward to in christ jesus he says and what is the exceeding greatness exceeding greatness of his power to us word who believe now let's take this um particular portion of scripture one after the other he says what is the exceeding greatness now the word exceeding there is a greek called hupabalu hupabalu um i'm sure that it's not going to be a new word to most of the folks here hupabalu hupabalu is a word that means to throw beyond the mark hupabalu it means to it means more than is needed or more than is necessary all right so it's like say for example you want to i don't know um i don't know for folks who have seen shaolin soccer here and if you remember when before they started before they were trained all right before they were actually trained to be to play very well even there was a particular guy i think his name is iron foot or something like that or the golden foot or something like that and so in initially his legs were so strong that if he tried to kick the ball to the net he would either um break the pole or he would tear the net or the ball would just move too far all right and that's to give an idea of what upper is that's not entirely upper value is all right but that's just to give an idea of what upper value is upper value is like you are trying to throw something um from let's just say you're trying to throw something from um senate building and your aim is at um um your aim is at um what they call this place now your aim is at um ah forgot it's been a while i've been in campus area but basically you're trying to aim you aim at maybe main from senate's building but by the time you throw it lands at campus gates you know that kind of thing all right so that's upper balloon is more way 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 more than enough all right that's an idea of upper balloon and then it says what is the exceeding greatness the word greatness there is a greek word megatos m-e-g-e-t-h-o-s m-e-g-e-t-h-o-s and you, you're going to see very soon why I'm going through all these words, you know, over and over. Now, of course, it's a word that just means great. But figuratively, it's actually a word that is actually speaking about the magnitude. So, because this is the thing. You would expect that because you threw something, because what you had was, um, 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 was more than the target, by the time it is getting to where it stops, you would expect that the, the strength is not more as much as the way it was before let me try to explain so of course if i kick a ball the force i used to kick the ball as that when i kick it is not the same force necessarily that is going to use to land by the time it is landing you would naturally expect that the force will be as strong as when i kicked it are we together but it lets you know here that not only is this power super abundant or more than is necessary or more than is needed it also lets you know that this power is great so it's not a function of wherever you are in the time lapse whether at the points when this power takes off or at the points when this power lands it is consistently great throughout the entire timeline this power is great it's not just enough 
to meet the need is not just more than enough to meet the need. It is also such that at every point in time, all right, when it is meeting the need and when it is going beyond the need, it is great. So it doesn't diminish at some point. It doesn't like go past the need and say, ah, because I've met the need. Oh, so the power is now reducing small, small. No, it is as powerful at the end as it was powerful at the beginning. It is consistently great. All right. So that's um, exceeding greatness of his power. Now, the word power there is the Greek word dunamis. Dunamis. Literally, I like the way somebody put it. He said, it's literally from the word dynamite. All right. It's basically explosive. Okay. Um, uh, it's, it's actually the word that actually means active, a power that is active. All right. Dunamis. Okay. Dunamis. So it lets you know. You know, this, this, I, I like to be very figurative about it so you have an understanding. So, not only is this power super abundant in that it will meet, it will go further than the goal, it is also such that it is consistently great. And by the time it does what it's supposed to do, it does it in an explosive manner. It does it in an explosive So, that's to give you an idea of the power. Okay, don't let me, don't let me jump yet. So, have that mindset of that power that the power is consistently great at every point in time it always goes beyond the target and whenever it does what it needs to do it does so with an explosive force all right he says oh, what's his exchange of his power so us world will be now that's crazy so he's letting you know that all these things you just saw is actually the power that works to us world that we Hence, the power that is at work in me, pay attention, the power that is at work in me, whenever I do anything, because this is a way to, to, to um, this is a mindset to have when you are ministering the power of God, that first of all, is there can never be any situation or any sickness or whatever it may be that comes before you that you do not have sufficient power for. Even before the power left you to that person's body, the power that was at work in you already is such that it is more than enough to cater for that need. And not only is it more than enough to cater for that need, it is great. And it is such that by the time it lands on that person to meet that need, it is explosive in force. Are you with me? So whether it is a devil that needs to be cast out, or it's a sickness that needs to be dispelled, or it's a situation that requires the power of God, the power of God through you is more than enough for that need. Number one, it is great consistently. And by the time it will actualize that need, it will hit it like a force, like an explosion, literally like a dynamite. Bam. Hallelujah. That's the power of God. And then he says, to others who believe, he now, he now wants to explain it better. He says it is according to the working. The word working there is the Greek word energy. Energy means something that is active. It is constantly working. It says according to the working of his mighty power. Two different words again are used for mighty power there. You have the word iskus. Iskus means might. I-S-C-H-U-S. It refers to might. And then you have another word kratos. Kratos refers to power. Now, here's the interesting thing about kratos. Kratos throughout the Bible was only used for power that was used for good. All right, Kratos is not a word that was normally used for power. All right, often when I see power in scripture, you either see dunamis or exousia. All right, and in few times you see energy, but you there are just extremely few times you see Kratos, and Kratos was always used for the power of God. 
So it lets you know also that that power that is working in you will believe is according to the working of his mighty power. The working of his mighty power. And then it lets you know what the working... So the mindset you have about power is this, is that the power in me, first of all, is more than the targets, is consistently great, has an explosive effect, is actively working, are we together? And then it is great, all right? And is the power of God. Is the great power of God. In fact, that, that, that's a good way to put it. Is the great power of God. So the great power of God is working through me, is working in me above the need which I needed to meet, all right? It surpasses the need. It is consistently great, has an explosive effect on the need. That's the mindset to have. All right. And so let's continue. So he says, um, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ. So the working of his mighty power, he wants you to understand what that working of his mighty power is. So he says, it is what he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Now, this is why you would understand. Because you need to understand the raising of Jesus from the dead is not just that Jesus was dead physically and then he rose up physically. The raising of Jesus from the dead was that, do not forget, as we've seen from Scripture, as we saw from Acts chapter 2, right, when um, um, uh, uh, Apostle Peter was quoting Psalm 16, we see that Jesus did not just die physically. He actually went to hell. Hallelujah. He went to hell. So, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead would have just been a physical resurrection, you know, from death to life, but rather also a spiritual resurrection from the power of hell onto the power of eternal life. Also the power of eternal life. And that's why that is very powerful. So it lets you know that the working of his power to us where to believe, according to the working, so the energy of his mighty power, all right, of the great power of God, all right, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him. That's why, you see, this is why this thing is important. He did not just raise him from the dead with that power. The power also set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. And that's the point of energy. You see, energy is such that it is constantly, actively working. Energy is not the kind of power that works and stops. Energy is constantly working like a turbine. He's constantly moving, actively. You know, is you know when this person said, um, um I think it was um um they said something about are you together? You know, it is constantly working in you. You know, the the wheels and the turbines are actively moving within the person. All right, and that's what you see in Jesus. The he didn't just walk in him and then he raised he was raised from the dead, and then that's all. Are we together? No, he raised him from the dead and set him at the right hand. All right, so that power was powerful enough not just to raise him from the dead, but to constantly walk in him up till he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. Ha hallelujah. He says, I set him at the right hand in the heavenly places. All right, now let's bring all of this together for an understanding. Bring all of this together for an understanding. Therefore, all right, therefore, the kind of power that is at work in the believer is. More than the needs, hallelujah, more than the needs, it is great at every point in time, consistently great, all right? It is, uh, it has an explosive effect on the need, hallelujah, and it is actively working. Do you know what it means? You know, you would expect that a power like this, because of the magnitude, 
you know, when you hit it, bah, you know, you have to recharge. You have to recharge. So you do bah. And, do, and, and then for like the next five minutes, you can't do anything because power just came down, you know. But it lets you know that this power is such that it is energy. It is actively working. So the, the, the shorty I have, that the power can work this next second is that the power just worked last, last second. For every second that the power works, it is confidence that it can work the next second because it's actively working. So if I saw the effect of power one second ago, I can see the effect of power right now. Why? Because it is energy actively working. It is constantly working in me. Ah, It is constantly working in me. The power of God is constantly working in me. This is the reason why it is... Um, it is. It doesn't make any sense when you say things like, um, uh, um, "Let's pray for that man of God." As virtue has left him, virtue will be restored. You don't get it. Now, oftentimes people are trying to say things like that. They're trying to use the example of Jesus. You see, the word virtue there. People think virtue is actually something that actually leaves. Virtue. The word virtue is actually the word power. Jesus was just trying to say that I felt power leave me. It's not like the power reserve became reduced. All right. Because do not forget that Jesus was on his way to Jairus's to Jairus's house, to heal Jairus's daughter, all right? So if it was really that the power left, you would have said, ah, that was the power I'm just going to use for Jairus's daughter. Oh, you know what, Jairus, I'm coming. Let me go down and pray. So I'll receive another power and I'm going to use for your daughter. No. On the way to Jairus's daughter's house, the one person needed healing and received that healing. And yet, it, it did not affect the power that Jesus needed to go and raise Jairus's daughter up. All right? And that's the mindset to have when it comes to the power of God, that I have enough power to consistently deliver. I have the power that can consistently deliver. So it can meet a need this very instant, this very second, and meet another need in the next instance, in the next second. The power in me is effective to consistently deliver. That's a mindset to have. It's enough to consistently deliver. The fact that it worked last second is proof that it can work this second. That it can work this second, all right? Now, having seen all of this, now it's important to pay attention to what reference was used for this power. And what is the reference? That Jesus was raised from the dead to be set at the right hand of God. Hallelujah. Far above all principalities. Now let's continue. So it says, far above all principalities and powers and might and dominion and every name that is named. Now I've explained this to you guys that when it says every name that is named, it's not just referring to name. All right, not just the name. That the word name there is the Greek word onoma. Onoma actually refers to an authority. It's not just name, it's actually authority. That, for example, if I come to a particular place, let's say, for example, the Queen of, of Elizabeth, um, the Queen of England, sorry, Queen Elizabeth, she sends me to a particular place to go and speak for her. And then I get there and I say, I'm here in the name of the Queen Elizabeth. It's not like I am here inside the name, no, but I am here by the authority of the Queen of England, Queen Elizabeth. Are we together? And so that's the mindset to have. That when he says um, every name that is named, it's not just talking about name, all right? Because I've heard people now say things like, you know, that um, um, they say the only way a sickness cannot be healed is that it doesn't have a name, all right? Once it has a name, it can be healed, not necessarily. We don't need to know the name of the sickness to have it getting healed. Are you with me? We don't need it, all right? We just need to recognize one thing, that there's one authority above every other sickness. Simple. That's it. So we don't care whether the sickness... So, in other words, what you're trying to say, imagine if the issue is just for the sickness to have a name. The devil just... That means all the devil has to do 
is to make sicknesses that don't have names. Just make it like impossible to discover. In fact, have you not heard of situations where the doctor tells you, we don't know what the problem is. We just know you are sick, but we don't know what the problem is. And then the person is healed by the power of God. So it lets you know that it's really not about you knowing the name of the sickness, or about the sickness having a name. Nobody really cares, all right? It's the power of God. What we're not trying to let you know is, is, is that so far, it is a matter of authority. And this, one, this is one of the mindsets you must have when it comes to ministering to the sick or ministering the power of God. It's a matter of authority. Are you with me? When it comes to supernatural, um, um, permit me to say, when it comes to spiritual warfare or supernatural battles, to be honest, it's a matter of authority. Do you understand? It's not a matter of um, this thing, um, who has muscles or not, or something like that. No, it's a matter of spiritual authority. Who has the higher authority? Simple. That's it. Who has the higher authority? And so when you minister, you have to minister from the standpoint or from the understanding of authority. That's what matters. It's not about how, how much you shout or about whether you lose your tie when you're ministering or about whether you pull off your suits. Nobody really cares. You could as well just stand and speak a word softly and then the demon gets out. Are we together? Or you could shout. Nobody really cares. The point of it is this. Which authority are you using? Simple. That's what matters the most. So spiritual warfare or the supernatural workings of God is a function of authority. And so the most important question to you should be, whose authority am I using? Whose authority am I on? It's that simple, okay? But the, the important thing to see, let's go back to Ephesians 1, is to see that it was explaining that power in the ability of the power to raise up Jesus from the dead, right? In fact, he was even talking about the power that raised up Christ from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Then it says, far above all principalities and powers and minds and dominion. It says, every name, that's every authority that has been declared. So when it says every name that is named, it won't just be referring to a name. It's actually referring to every authority that is declared for something. All right. So every authority that is declared, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. So it's letting you know that the efficacy of this power is not just in this world alone, but it's also in the world to come. Now, let's look at the confines of this prayer very, very well. The three things that have been spoken about in this prayer, hope of his calling. Hope of his calling, we already saw it, we, we saw it, we said it's the redemption of our bodies, all right? The riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, that's the expanse of the glory of his inheritance. What is that inheritance? The uh, purchased possession that will be redeemed. Basically, the redemption of our bodies. And then number three, it now says, the exceeding greatness of his power to us only believe. And what is that power? That he raised up Jesus from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Now, pay attention. I've always said this again and again. That it's important to note that when Jesus was raised from the dead, he was raised from the dead as a man. Are we together? And he sits at the right hand of the Father today as a man, never to die again. So, when you see the resurrection being spoken about, fundamentally, the resurrection is a pattern for the man in Christ. That even if the man in Christ dies, he will live forever as a man. And that was what First Peter chapter 1 and verse 18 was. First Peter 1, is it verse 18 now? When he says, um, no, I think it's First Peter 1 and verse 3. When he says, blessed be the God and Father of Jesus Christ, who has begotten us unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And I explained that over the weekend actually, how that, when he says he has begotten us unto a lively hope, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, it means that our confidence that we have a living hope is that Jesus has been raised from the dead. So because Jesus has been raised from the dead, we are sure, all right, that we can also be raised from the dead, never to die again as well. 
That's our confidence. All right. That's what we bask in. That's our reality. So the fact that Jesus is raised from the dead is, is enough proof for us and is enough confidence for us that we can live forever as well. That's basically what 1 Corinthians 15 was saying. You know, when he was trying to explain to people who believe that there's no such thing as a resurrection from the dead, he says, if Christ be raised from the dead, how, how then say some of you that there is no resurrection from the dead? How then? How do you say so? So the short thing that we have, that a man can be raised from the dead, never to die again, is the fact that it has already happened in Jesus, all right? And we have our pattern from him. So bringing this understanding and the understanding of the context of Ephesians 1 that we've been having so far into this, that would mean that even when Ephesians 1.19 was talking about the exceeding greatness of his power, it actually was making us realize the greatest of the power that will raise up the man in Christ at the last day. You know, it's good to see, now, it's good to be able to see that the, the exceeding greatness of God's power is at work in us today. So that we can heal the sick, we can raise the dead, we can do this and do that. But you see, even for the man who decides to be uninterested in the power of God, even though he has it, he decides to be uninterested in the power of God, he doesn't use it. He doesn't change the fact that on the trump of God, or at the trump of God and on the last day, that power of God in him will raise him up from the dead, never to die again. Simple. So whether or not you believe in the healing power of God, whether or not you believe that the power of God is at work in you, whether or not you believe that you can dispense the power of god at the last day all right when the believers are raised from the dead it is that power of god that is at work in you that will actually raise you from the dead because it's the same power that, that was wrought in christ when he was raised from the dead and he was set at the right hand of the father far above all principalities and powers so what ephesians 119 was trying to actually communicate to you was to let you know that the power that raised up jesus from the dead for him never to die again is the same power that works in nosu believe. This way, you must already be able to see a context of the Ephesians 1 15 to 19 prayer. That fundamentally, that prayer was actually a prayer for knowledge as regards all that God would do in the believer in the context of redemption of our bodies, or in the context of the rapture, or in the context of what would happen at the trump of God. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that you cannot use this prayer to you know, to talk about um, understanding what God has done for the man in Christ or for you to pray the prayer so that your minds will be open, you know, so you can understand God's word. Not like it's wrong, but the primary context of that scripture of Ephesians 1, 15 to 19, primarily, as we've been seeing the context of Ephesians 1 and verse 10, the primary context of that scripture actually is actually referring to the glorification of the body of the man in Christ. So when he says the hope of his calling, that's what he's talking about. The riches of the glorious inheritance in the same, that's what he's talking about. The exceeding greatness of his power, and that's why he made that example, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. So meaning, it won't matter how long you have died as a man in Christ. The same power that raised up Jesus from the dead is the same power that will raise you up at the last day. All right? And then he now goes on to say, uh, um, for, um, far above all principalities and powers and might and dominions and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is come. He now says, and he has put all things under his feet. Now, the phrase under his feet or under one's feet, wow, time is long gone. Wow. You know what? Let me just, please, let me just quickly round, round this up. Um, just give me um, four more minutes. All right. I'll try to round this up in four minutes. So, so the word under his feet there is actually a figurative expression. It's a regressive expression that does denotes authority or dominion, all right? I'm not going to tell you the verses where it was used, so you can check it on your own time. 
First Kings chapter five and verse three. Let's First Kings five and verse three. Psalms eighteen and verse thirty-six. <coughs> Psalms eighteen and verse thirty-six. Psalms forty-seven and verse three. So it's actually an. It's just a figurative expression used to denote authority. When you say under his feet, it just means you know he's above them. All right. He has authority over them. He has dominion over them. All right. He says he has given to be head over all things. Yeah, he says God has put he has put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things. Now I've told you guys that when you see all, you must always use it in context. All right. He already says some things before. He now says he has given him to be head over all things. A better way you can put this is he has given him to be head over all these things. What are these things? Principalities, powers, might, dominion, every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is come. So those are the things that he has made him head over. All right. He says um, he has um, he has put all things. Sorry, he has put all things under his feet. So those are the things that have been put under his feet: principalities, powers, might, and dominion. Of course, because he sits at the right hand of the Father, far above all these things. So because he's far above all these things, they are under his feet. That makes a lot of sense. All right. So he says um, he has put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. Gave him to be head over all things to the church. Now let's make sense of this. It means he gave him to be head over all things. That's my one. Or to be head over all these things. That's my one. Then he also gave him to be head over the church. So he gave him to be head over all these things as we've seen already. Because he's far above them. Right? And they're under his feet. Right? So he gave him to be head over all these things. But he also gave him to be head over the church. Which is his body. So he gave him over to the church as well. Because Jesus is, this is the thing, you cannot separate Jesus' resurrection from the dead from the building of the church. In fact, his resurrection from the dead itself was the creation of the church. In the fact that he, he died as a single person, but when he rose, in the eyes of Revelation, he rose as a man, you know, to which you had billions of souls raised with him as well. Because in, this, in the sense that even though he was raised as a single man, anyone who believes that what he did, he did for them, would also be raised in that manner. So in the eyes of Revelation, Jesus raised as billions of people. In other words, as billions of Christians. Hallelujah. And so you cannot separate all right, the resurrection of Jesus and his position at the right hand of the Father from the building of the church. They are one and the same. And that's why it says that the church is his body, which is his fullness. Because they are one and the same. They are together. They are not separated. It's not Jesus, then the body. No. It is Jesus and the body put together. The fact that he rose from the dead and he is Lord as a reason of the resurrection, that Lordship also comes with the creation of the church. So he is Lord over all. At the same time, he is the head of the church together. He says, which is his body? The fullness, his fullness that filleth all in all. Hallelujah. And I'm just going to explain now. The word all there is a, is a good word, pass. Now, here's the interesting thing about all. All can either mean all individually or all collectively. And let me explain. Now, when you say all, then you say, I want everybody in this. I want, um, okay, let me see. Uh, are all of you okay? Let me ask it that way. When you ask, are all of you okay? You can either be saying two things. You can either be saying, is every single one of you in this class okay? Or... All together, are you okay? That's all. All right. When you say, are all of you okay? You could either mean, is everybody in this class individually okay? Or is all of, or are all of you all together as one? Like, is this class, oh, 
are you guys okay that's the way to, that's another way to look at it so when you see all in all there you have to know what he's talking about and now this is not necessarily um um doctrinal this is just my own perspective i believe that the all in all there was actually referring to is the fullness of him that feels all things individually causing them to be filled collectively now let me explain what i'm trying to say so the church is the body of christ but the church is filled with individual people all right and so god fills us all individually and because none of us is left out he has filled us collectively again god fills us all individually all right each and every one of us the, the church basically is the body of christ are we together and that's god's fullness okay so but the body of christ really is made up of people all right individual people one after the other that have believed the gospel so for each of us god has given us his fullness the bible says we are complete in him all right so each of us has the fullness of god and in the fact that he has filled us up individually that is the surety and because he did not leave anybody else he filled every single person individually that is the surety that collectively as a body we are filled up as well so he has filled us up individually as men in christ and because he has filled every single one of us up collectively as a body of christ we are also filled up we are also the fullness of god hallelujah glory to jesus so that's the mindset to have hallelujah so the hope of his calling all right the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints the exceeding greatness of his power towards what we believe that he rose in christ when he raised us up from the dead set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places far above all principalities and powers might and dominion and every name that's his name not only in this world but also in that which is to come he has put all things under his feet gave him to be head over all things in the church his body the fullness of him that fills all in all hallelujah all right so um walk with this consciousness walk with this assurance there is a work that has been done in you it's been perfected in you all right you are not um you are not a man trying to struggle with the possibility or the idea of making heaven no it's it's a done deal you are the man in christ you are the man in heaven already your conversation is in heaven your citizenship is in heaven and from there, you are with the coming of the Messiah. So you are not, you know, when Jesus will come, it's not, it's not a matter of fear. It's not a matter of hey God. No, it's it's an homecoming. All right. It's an homecoming. It's just making your spiritual reality physical to you. That's it. You are not going to a different place from where you are. Are you with me? You are in heaven already. It's just that now heaven will be more obvious to you than it has ever been. Before now. Because of the limitation of your senses, because of the limitation of your five senses, as a reason of this body that you have, you know, because of its limitations, there are some things you cannot see, some things you cannot hear consistently. You know, few times when we have words of knowledge, we see things beyond the normal. We hear things beyond the normal. We know things beyond the normal. But there will come a time when our physical bodies will interact with the supernatural normally. Hallelujah. Those times, your spiritual realities will now become much more evident to you than ever before. Hallelujah. You see, that is that which we wait for. So we are not waiting for something new to happen. No, we are just making waiting for it to become much more real than it has ever been before. Hallelujah. And that's why he says something. He says in um, 1 John chapter 3, you know, when he says that now are we the sons of God, he says it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know one thing, that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So as we see him as he is, 
we would also be changing to the same image very clearly. It will be obvious who we really are. Hallelujah. Who we really are, the world does not see it. Hallelujah. Because who we really are is on our inside. Who we really are is not this covering of flesh. No, we are supernatural beings. We are spiritual beings. We are men in Christ, full of the Holy Ghost, full of power. That's who we really are. We are men with supernatural ability, men who are filled with the Holy Ghost, who have been saved from darkness, translated from darkness into eternal life. Hallelujah. We are supermen. That's who we really are. <laughs> we are we are supermen. You know, we've seen we've seen superheroes on the TV. You know, we've seen, you know, the likes of Superman, Iron Man, etc. Seen on the TV. But really, that's who we are. We are supermen. Hallelujah. We are just in this mortal flesh of clay. Hallelujah. But then a time is coming when he will come with his angels rising upon the clouds. Hallelujah. That time when he comes and he appears, we will see him for who he is. And it will be evident to the world who we truly are. Then the world will really know who we are because we'll be fashioned like unto his glorious body. We will fashion like unto his image. Then it will be obvious to all. They would actually see us for who we really are. Even we ourselves will see ourselves for who we really are. Because a lot of times we have, you know, we have doubts in our minds. We know in our hearts that we are of God. We know in our hearts, you know, that we have been changed. That we are different from the world. But it doesn't always look like it's worse. Sometimes we still look at our flesh, you know, we look at the faces of our flesh, the mistakes we make, etc., etc. But you know, that time will come when he will wipe away all tears from our eyes. We will see him as he is would have been changed to the same exact image and we'll walk in the realities of who we have become totally and fully. No impedance whatsoever. No blockage. No stopping whatsoever. We'll walk as who we have been made. Hallelujah. And you see, that is the context of what was spoken, you know, in the ending part of Ephesians 1. Hallelujah. The glorious things that God has done in, for us in Christ. You see, this is the confidence by which God... So, so you see, the confidence of the rapture and the confidence of that which is going to happen to us at the point of the rapture isn't something to have when rapture is spoken about alone. It is a confidence that drives everything we do. Are we together? So when you talk about salvation, salvation is a full package. You know, the, the thing is when we talk about salvation, oftentimes what comes to our mind is just in Christ's realities. I'm saved, I'm justified, I'm sanctified, I'm righteous. But a major part of it, are you with me? The finality of it is that I am saved, you understand? from eternal damnation because i'm going to live forever hallelujah and i'm going to live as a man forever body soul and spirit intact that's a consistent mindset to have with salvation so let the entire package be what you see all right it's not just the righteousness the sanctification the redemption that's beautiful but also understand the fact that i will live forever you see that's the confidence of the man in christ are we together that's the confidence that the apostles had when they went to preach. That even if they kill my flesh, I will together. Even if they can bruise me, even if they can kill me, I'm going to live forever. That's the mindset the apostles had. Hallelujah. That's the mindset that we need to have today. Hallelujah. That this world is not our own. We are just passers by. Hallelujah. Our real citizenship is in heaven. Glory to God. Glory to Jesus.